Kristen Kelly, and this is Mom School. Eve Rodsky is a Harvard-trained attorney, mom to three kids, and a New York Times best-selling author of the book, Fair Play. Now, Fair Play tackles head-on one of the issues that is holding women and mothers back, both in the workplace and in their personal lives, and it's the unequal gender division of labor within a household. Reese Witherspoon chose Fair Play for her book club. I saw on TV the other day, Jenna Bush Hager and Hoda Kotb were talking about this book, so those are some of the coolest tricks in the game. If that doesn't tell you something, it should. Now, if you think that because you are a stay-at-home mom and you're not earning money, that you're responsible for the dishes and the laundry and the grocery shopping and the cooking and cleaning toilets and the hundreds of other tasks that go into running a household, think again. So Eve excels in organizational management. That's her background. And she created this card game. It's a little card game that you play with your partner. So it's a pretty simple fix for a huge pervasive problem. And during our conversation, we talk about things like toxic time messaging, which is huge. Things like he makes more money than me, so I should... No, that doesn't work like that. We talk about reclaiming your right to be interesting as a woman. We talk about the invisible mental load that women carry. And we talk about standing in your power and reclaiming your self-worth. So whether you stay at home all day taking care of babies or you work 60 hours a week outside the home, this book can revolutionize your life. And that's a big statement, but it's true. So here's my chat with Eve Rodsky. I cannot tell you how much I was just vibing on this book so hard. And there was no better time for me to have found it than during quarantine when I was losing my shit at home. It was like God just made it fall off the bookshelf onto my lap. But I originally found you because Erin at Totem Women had posted a quote from your book, a text from your husband that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. (laughs) (laughs) And then you found yourself on the side of the road crying. And I read this and I reposted it. I was like, this woman lives my life. (laughs) You know, I was an entertainment correspondent at People Magazine, got pregnant, surprise. And I looked around one day and I was like, how the hell did I get here? How did this happen? So talk to me about why you did not get your husband blueberries. Thank you. That's such a profound intro because, you know, it's like these small moments, Kristen, right? That lead to these metaphysical changes sometimes. And I think, you know, those ordinary moments of the quarantine probably will look back and there'll be similar moments for a lot of people where they just hit their breaking point over something really stupid, like beard shavings in the sink or like by the door that everybody keeps stepping over that you're supposed to move. Mine was off-season blueberries. This happened eight years ago to me. Just like you said, it was an ordinary day right after my second son, Ben, was born. It felt like a COVID day where space and time was collapsing on me. I had just started my own business because I opted out of the traditional workforce at J.P. Morgan. Uh, I now put that in quotes because now I've learned through my eight years of research, right, that I was pushed out. And we'll talk about those societal forces that pushed me out of the workforce. But at the time, I thought it was my choice to opt out and start my own legal boutique firm, a mediation firm for highly complex families. I had a client contract in my lap that day. I was racing to pick up my older son, Zach, at his toddler transition program, which in America lasts like two minutes because we value working parents. I had a diaper bag and a breast pump in my passenger seat in my car. I had gifts for the newborn baby to return in the backseat because those store policies are like two days, right? And, And then you're like, lose all the money. So I wanted to get those gifts returned. And then on top of this crazy day, where there's literally a pen stabbing me in the vagina as I was trying to mark up this contract, I get this fucking text from Seth. I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And I was like, I'm done. I pulled over. In LA, you don't take that lightly because there's traffic. So you don't want to pull over, but I had to pull over. I was in a sort of a metaphysical state of not even anger, but just such sadness You know, I felt like my marriage was collapsing and it wasn't over like my affair with an NFL player or like something really dramatic, like some fight in the Caribbean. Like that's how my marriage should have ended, right? Not Not over blueberries. So damn cliche. So stupid. And then on top of that, I just kept thinking to myself, 
This was not the marriage career combo I thought I would have. I used to be able to manage employee teams. Now I can't even manage a grocery list. And on top of that, how did I become, right, the default? Or as you saw in Fair Play, I call it the she-fault for every single household and domestic task for my family. I will tell you this was not supposed to happen to me for two reasons. One, I'm a product of a single mom. So I vowed from seven years old when I was told I was a parental child, helping my mother with eviction notices, writing checks for her, dropping them off next door, literally. By probably like 11 or 12, I was dropping off her rent checks next door in the slot so that we didn't you know, get evicted. So I had vowed that this wouldn't happen to me. I would have an equal partner in the home, that I wouldn't be that way myself. And then on top of that, I'm literally trained. I'm a Harvard trained lawyer and mediator. I'm trained to use my voice. So I kept thinking, well, if this happened to me under those two circumstances where I vowed in seven that I would have an equal partner in the home and I'm trained to communicate and I can't even get my husband to pick up his own fucking shit for his smoothie, then it's probably happening to other women. And I guess that's the good news for fair play, right? I get to meet people like you bad news for society, but it wasn't a me problem. It's a private lives, public issues problem where I get to meet and connect with women like you, which makes me really happy on this journey because we all have had, you know, some version of that. And it's not just one ethnicity. It's not just one socioeconomic class. It's actually pervasive across our country and the world because I went out and that's what took me so long, Kristen, to write this book was I wanted to interview a lot of people. And then eventually my spreadsheet said I'd gotten to over 500 men and women. And I said, I think I've reached my saturation point. I can stop interviewing now. And you said your data set was representative of the U.S. census, right? Yes. That was really intentional, but hard, right? Because it's easy, obviously, to get to your community or communities of friends, but to really go out and say, I want to mirror the U.S. census. That took, obviously, a lot of work. I had to go through different nonprofits, and I wanted to get a panoply of different cities, so friends of friends and reaching out to people on social media who are posting in public groups. It took time, but it was worth it because now I'm super confident in who's working and trying out the system because it's a panoply of couples. They don't just look like me. And on top of that, there's nothing I haven't seen. I'll just tell you that there's nothing I haven't heard or seen in terms of how families are negotiating domestic labor. I've heard it all. So it took you seven years, right? To finish all of your research. When I started reading the book, I was wondering myself and you answered it right off the bat. And this is the one thing I will take with me for the rest of my life from fair play that I will say didn't save my marriage because we weren't on the brink of leaving one another, but it's, it has revolutionized my marriage. And now my family and my kids' lives. I mean, this sounds dramatic, but it's huge. And it is your number one rule that all time is created equal. So I had this complex about I'm a stay-at-home mom right now because I took my year off, right, Mm -hmm. to be with my daughter because I could not do it all. I thought I cannot be a mom and I cannot work in this competitive field and go steal Juliana Rancic's job, which was the plan. I can't do it all. And so I just left and I became a stay-at-home mom. And I thought, I can't bother my husband because he's making money, right? And our family needs money. So talk to me about rule number one, all times created equal. Well, thank you. I feel like I'm tearing up because that was such a nice introduction to this rule. I'm glad it resonated with you because um, the reason why it makes me cry is because it's the only other day, Kristen, that I cried actually in the whole, I mean, I've cried obviously for myself, but in terms of crying for women, especially women in hetero cisgender relationships, America and the world. Like I said, I have a lot of data from the UK, New Zealand, Australia, Japan, you name it. But we're talking really about America. And it's exactly what you were saying. It makes me tear up because the only other day I teared up was when I had this profound realization, other than the blueberries day, that I knew in my heart that society didn't value women's time. I know that from equal pay, right, that if women and men are in the same job, I knew that at my law firm, when I asked what my friend Martin's bonus was and my bonus, we were first first one year associates working on the same deal. He was nice enough to tell me what it was because he assumed, you know, it would be the same. And he had gotten uh, a bonus that was almost twice as much as my bonus. So I knew that in the 
business world that women and men's time is not valued the same. We know that when women enter male professions, the average salary goes down. But what I wasn't prepared for in my research was how much women don't value their own time. And I think that was such a profound realization. So I'll tell you about the day I cried, but first I'll tell you some of the reasons how I saw that. Part of when you start doing research, I've done this on all my anthropology. I did this in my law and economics work, right? You just start taking notes. And then when you see patterns, you can start writing little notes to your side when you see check off something that kept being a pattern. So there was these things that women kept saying to me that were guarding men's time that kept coming up over and over again. So the first one was, of course, I'm not asking my husband to wake up early with the kids or to bother him with being called by the school if our kid is sick because my husband makes more money than me. Just like you said, Kristen, right? So I start to really unpack that and think about that because that would mean because I chose philanthropy and my husband chose private equity, that that means I'm responsible now for doing all the unpaid labor in my home for the rest of our lives. It just didn't make any logical sense to me. So I unpacked that and realized that that wasn't making a lot of logical sense, that time is money, because it just didn't seem to make a lot. It doesn't mean that, again, it has to be 50-50, but the fairness of time, I was sort of thinking, this doesn't really make sense, that just because I chose a different field that brings in less salary, that it's less valuable. You could say philanthropy and working with people and giving out their money and structuring their family businesses and foundations to better the world is probably more valuable to society than investing in, say, a drink, right? Like a coconut water, like my husband does. So that's one thing. And then other women were saying things to me like, well, I do everything in the home or I pick up the kids or I'm, you know, I work and I'm preparing dinner because I'm a better multitasker. Like my husband's just better at focusing on one task at a time. And we know that women have better executive function than men. We're better multitaskers. There's some weird articles out there that maybe say that out of nowhere. So I said, you know what? I don't trust the press. I've never trusted the press. You can look at my bibliography. I go straight to the sources. I mean, no offense to people. Yes, you are <laughs> a part of the press, but I like to go to no, original I like sources what, if I yeah. can. And so I went to the original source. I went to one of the top neuroscientists who works on the developing brain and executive function. And I asked him, and this is the day I cried. So that's what I want to tell you. I asked him, sat down with him and said, do you think women are better multitaskers? Like I see these articles that seem to say that, or women are saying that in these blogs. Are we wired differently? And he just looked at me very seriously, actually, and profoundly and said to me, Imagine, Eve, we can convince half the population that they're better at wiping asses and doing dishes. I got the um, how, great, how great for the other half of the population. He's like, so that's probably where that comes from because there's no data. There's no actual neuroscience data that would show that women are better multitaskers than men. Even when you do the experiments, there's nothing there. Women and men have no difference in their executive function. That's the day I cried. I actually, and that's why I tear up because there were so many things. It's on me that I am better. I have to do it all to be it all. All of those, what I call now toxic time messages Mm -hmm. sort of were breaking down as I was talking to this man and I couldn't hold it in. It just, it all came out. Like my tears just started rolling in front of this old white man. (laughs) That was a very profound day. And then another profound thing that I actually don't talk about a lot, but I do think it's important is his follow-up comment to me was about if we stop believing that we're better multitaskers, women, because it's not true, right? He said, you know, will the guilt and shame, you know, all this mom guilt stuff, will that come in instead to just put you back where you were? So that was another really profound thing that he was and I were talking about. And then my favorite was women saying to me in the time it takes me to tell my husband what to do, I might as well just do it myself. So for that one, I went to my very close friend, Dan Ariely, who I write about in the book. He's the top behavioral economist. You know, he writes for the Wall Street Journal. He's not, you know, Bernie Sanders by any means. He's a traditional man. But even he said to me, that's a terrible argument for women. And the time it takes me to tell him what to do, I should do it myself. He said, because that means you're using your precious time to wipe those asses and do those dishes forever. Like, what does that mean? Um, So that was a very profound day as well. And finally, women and men in the same job, 
So I interviewed a young couple who were shipping supervisors, couples who were two colorectal surgeons. And still, Kristen, they were saying things to me like, my husband is super busy and I can find the time. So I think especially now when I get to talk to you in a really interesting time in our country um, and this pandemic, when the space-time continuum is sort of collapsing on all of us, there's really no way to find time. And when women say that, we're just really guarding against this idea that there's just different expectations from society over how we're supposed to use our time. And so we have to retire those toxic time messages. All time is created equal. I get 24 hours in my day. You get 24 hours in our day. We don't have a guarantee for how much time we have on this earth. And my time is diamonds. Your time is diamonds. And I think until women actually really believe that, that their time is as valuable as their partner's time, regardless of all these other toxic time messages we give ourselves, then really nothing else will change. Yeah. And so that's the core. That is the core of fair play. Uh, you have to believe your time is as valuable as your partner's. Otherwise, then there's nothing I can do to help you. <laughs> you know, no, we have that's, to help that's, ourselves. A, that's a fundamental piece of this. And you know what I think is so interesting is if you approach your partner with fair play the wrong way, like you mentioned in the book, it can go awry. So you got to do it at the right time. But this isn't a man-hating, man-shaming movement at all. It's really how women feel about themselves, their own self-worth, their own value, the value that they place on their time. So it's just kind of reframing this whole belief around your worth as a woman. And being on a two-hour conference call is equal, like you say in the book, to holding my kid's hand at the doctor for two hours. Right? It's just... Correct. That is it. That is it. It is a quality of time because we have to, and especially in a pandemic, it's time to start looking at societal value, right? What is more important than care? (laughs) I mean, I would argue that holding your child's hand in the pediatrician's office is actually more valuable than an hour in the boardroom. Well, me too. (laughs) Yeah, but I don't go there. I say that it's equal value. And if we believe that, if we truly believe that those things have equal value, then more men will start doing them. Because that is not man-shaming. Like you said, the beauty of coming to the table and inviting men into their full power in the home is to say that you belong here. You belong here because this is what is actually going to increase your longevity, your happiness, your connection with your children, your connection with your spouse. I've been thinking very existentially lately, so you're getting me a very emotional emotional week. So have Um, I. So this is good. Yeah, it's very existential because... I get all these amazing stories from people. There's been 70 articles that have been written about invisible work now since March 8th. So I get every one of those. I've written a lot of them, but there's still like 50 more that are... So the movement's starting. But I got a call from a client. So again, my day job, I'm a mediator, I'm a lawyer. I work with families that look like the HBO show Succession. They are difficult families. You should feel bad for me for that day job. I just got off a call with one of them. Ah, but what I do is I do bring domestic harmony, communication tools, systems to these families when they're transferring over their businesses and their family foundations. I was talked to a client and he said to me, I'm calling you because I wanted to tell you about this funeral. I said, that's interesting that a funeral would make you think of me, but okay. And what he said was that, so this is a certain echelon of society, right? These are people who can afford to pay me to restructure their succession and their family foundations, right? They typically have 150 million or more in their foundations. These are the top echelons of society. And this man says to me that his colleague, so another man who was very wealthy, had passed away. This was before COVID, but I've been thinking about the story a lot lately. And what he said was that there were so many people there. He was a titan of his business, hundreds of millions of dollars he had made in his life. But what broke the house down at the funeral in the the church was his daughters. He said each one of them, he had three daughters, went up to the podium to speak about their father. And all they did was just start reciting a poem. And they each went up for this poem, this sort of beautiful Shel Silverstein-like poem. The crowd was a little confused. Each one went up, didn't say anything except for reading the poem. And then finally, the last daughter came up and said, those are three of the poems our father wrote us when he was the tooth fairy. I know, I'm telling you, this story makes me cry again. I'm just in the existential writing of it. And that was it. He said, that was really all that people remembered from the funeral service. And then I started to think about like, why are we on this earth? Why are men on this earth? 
This man, he could have said an hour in the boardroom was more important than his family, but he was a tooth fairy. He still had time, you know, he probably didn't do 50-50. I don't know what he did in the home, but it must have felt fair to his daughters because he had this very strong connection with them. They spoke about it, according to my client. And the tooth fairy, that's what they remember. That's what everybody remembered about him on the last day of his, you know, the first day of his death, you know, the last day of his life. So I think we all should need to think about that. What do we value now? And why are we here? (laughs) If it's not to connect and to care for others. It is so powerful and so true, especially at a time like this. You mentioned he may not have had a 50-50 workload in the house, right? But he held the magical beings card. Yes, he did. And maybe that was the only card he held. Who knows? But that is what he will be remembered for by his daughter's. If a man can take that message away, that this is not angry women barking, this is for all of us to benefit. This is for families to benefit. I mean, it's so deep and it sounds crazy, but on the day of your funeral, like, what do you want people to be saying about you? How, How do you spend your time? What do you value? And it's so important because YPO, for example, you know, the Young Presidents Organization, I'd spoken to them a long time ago about philanthropy. And I remember that they had, you know, it's all these, you know, men and suits and it's a very powerful organization. And they had this exercise where they want you to write your eulogy. And I remember when I started to think about that for women and thinking about our self-worth and writing our eulogy to women, it was too intense. When I started to ask them, what makes you uniquely you and how do you share with that with the world? I was able to get an identity loss and, you know, sort of who they were before kids in a much nicer way. But I do remember that YPO exercise, write your eulogy. It's not the way I speak. It's a little too intense for me, but I do think that that tooth fairy story is exactly what you were saying before, Chris. And it's this idea that this is not man shaming. I'm actually saying to men, thank you. And you will benefit from being more connected in the home. You will benefit from being the tooth fairy. I promise you. Yes. You mentioned identity loss. And rule number two is reclaiming your right to be interesting. So the eve before marriage and after kids, I can imagine, is a different woman because I looked around and I thought, my daughter's two and a half years old and I just feel like I am on a different planet and I needed to reel it back in, but I needed to reclaim my right to be interesting. I have in my notes, it says Ellen. I remember Ellen Ellen, from the book with the interior design company, but talk to me about, I'll tell you, that made me cry hard. Tell me about what reclaiming your right to be interesting means. Well, thank you for letting me bring up Ellen. I don't get to talk about her that much, but um, now that I sort of gave you the background of my work, I was living those toxic time messages, Kristen, when I first started my research. My toxic time message that I was living was, well, if you need help, just get it. That's before I understood the CPE, right? The conception, planning, and execution. Yes. And actually, you can't really outsource the mental load. And we'll talk about that, the actual system to your listeners, of course, and the practical stuff. But now that we're sort of in the consciousness raising piece, rule one was all time is created equal. We did that. Rule two is the other consciousness raising rule and this idea of the right to be interesting. So what do I mean by that? Well, I didn't want to write this, this rule. I'm a lawyer. I'm super left brain. I know that because I take all those weird quizzes of like, what color do you see in the dress? And I'm always like the left brain one. I'm very analytical. I love spreadsheets. As you know, from the book that started with a should I do spreadsheet. So what was happening though, in my research back to the notes was I kept having to write ID, which was identity loss or C-I-Y-O-O, which was like complicit in your own oppression. And what was happening was this idea that I'm a role. And no, there is no, and I am hashtag Brayden's mom. And no one's ever asked me, I used to ask women, how many of your mom friends know what you used to do before kids? And actually many of them said that no one's ever asked them what they did before kids. They said that their mom friends don't know where they went to college. So there's, you know, maybe 30 years, 20 years, 40 years, whenever you have your kids of life that is not being acknowledged or even amongst other women. And so Ellen was one of my old clients and the toxic time message I had at the time was, if you need help, just get it. Uh, Ellen is rich. Obviously, you know, she and her ex-husband hired me. So why did she leave her marriage? Because she had alluded sometimes to these concepts of 
invisible work and all this. So she tells me the story of being the first in her family to go to college, being the first in her family to get a degree, an art and design degree from a Midwest college. She tells me about loving her interior design firm, having it in the 90s, feeling so proud of it. And then as her husband got wealthier, all she heard from him and the subsequent community around her was, it's not worth it for you to work. What is your $10,000 commission doing for us? And so what she said is she completely internalized that and listened. And so she leaned into the fair play cards. She said, she back then it was just a spreadsheet. It was just a shit I do spreadsheet. So she was pointing at things in my whatever, I don't know what device I had back then. I don't even think we had iPads back there. It was probably like an old Dell computer. Um, she's looking at my spreadsheet and she just starts pointing at tabs and saying, you think anybody gave a shit that um, I worked in in-school service for my kids? I was the first one to bring a vegetable garden to their school. Do you think anybody gave a shit? She looked at pet care, that I was nursing our dying dog back to health because my second daughter, it was her best friend, that dog, and she had anxiety and it was everything to her. No. Nobody did. And because I had heard it wasn't worth it for me to work, I would start walking around my husband's conferences, his dinners, and people would leave me. They would go to refresh their drinks because they would say, ask me a few questions and then say, well, are you going to go back to interior design? And when I said, no, that wasn't in the cards right now, they would go to refresh their drinks. I have the chills. This is hitting home. So I said, well, what happened then to your marriage? And she said, honestly, if you want me to be in, you know, honest, I said, of course. She said, I lost my permission to be interesting. And I found that so interesting to me because what she ended up meaning was not permission necessarily from other people, but from herself. But it started with permission from other people because she fought back, Kristen. She went, uh, she signed up for this course in Milan to get her long, I don't know, I don't know design and I haven't really asked her exactly, but some sort of important continuing education course in Milan. It was two weeks. She had everything ready to go, brought it up to her husband. Her kids were six and nine at the time, I believe. And uh, he said, that's insane. Like you're not leaving us. This is the nineties. So there probably wasn't devices for her to check in, but it was the community that shamed her. What she said, it was that if her community had said, of course you need to go, she probably would have gone. But most of the women she said around her said, you're insane. You don't leave a six and nine year old at home to go eat gelato, you know, in the Rialto Bridge or wherever she was. And so she said she dropped this idea of going to Milan. And she said that when her marriage finally fell apart, she often asked herself, if I had gone to Milan, you know, would I have come back a different person if I had fought for that two weeks? And then maybe a different person in my marriage too. She did eventually go back to interior design, but it took her divorcing her husband to do that. Yes. She finally went back with a different man after her. She left this old husband. And I don't want that to happen. I want us all never to have to go through all that to get there. Right. You mentioned the guilt and shame piece. And I think that that is huge for mothers. And a lot of it, I find for myself, I'm doing it to myself. This is really coming from nowhere. Of course, my husband has done the same thing of just get help. Well, no, because that isn't going to solve all of the problems. It's still going to be in my mental load. Correct. But I feel guilt and shame. And then I sometimes get the support from my community. I think as a whole, we're getting better, but it's definitely still there. How do you get rid of mom guilt? What do we do? Okay, great question. I wish I could have brought you through my interviews. So I'm going to tell you the three steps to get rid of mom guilt. And I actually think it's really easy. First is to recognize that half the population doesn't live with it. So like I said, I wish I could take you on my journey through men, because one of my favorite questions, and you read this in the book, it's sort of buried in there. So it's my question I ask men. If you had to stay an extra night. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so it was so interesting. (laughs) I ask all these men, the professional men. So, you know, men who were identifying as working class or didn't travel as much. I didn't ask this, but this was more the professional class of men. I said, if you're fogged in an SFO, you have to stay an extra night. You said you're put your kids to bed. You've been away for a while. Do you feel guilt and shame? And I love asking vague questions. It's my favorite thing to do. So I assumed men would say no or yes, or maybe, but What I did not expect was for many men not to understand the question. So I think that's it. It's understanding that when you see somebody 
like you, a professional. I asked a lot of men who went to law school with me that question. So they are my peers. And to look at them, their fathers, I love a lot of these men. And to have them say to me, I'm not understanding what you mean. Do you mean because my wife's going to be mad at me? And I said, no, no. Do you feel guilt and shame because my kids are upset? No, no. Do you feel guilt and shame? Like, do you feel guilt and shame? And so having so many men on this journey not understand that question is one really easy way to get rid of it, to understand half the population doesn't have it. Like I said, I wish I could take you on that journey with me. If I could take all women on that journey with me to rid it by seeing that half the population doesn't have it, great. Number two is to go back to my amazing neuroscientist, right? With the toxic time messages where he said to me, even if women start understanding that they're not wired differently, will guilt and shame just sort of come in there to replace the toxic time messages that you're unraveling for them? Good question. So I think, again, understanding that guilt and shame is a societal construct is really, really important. And who is it serving? So I always ask something like now, and again, I don't go too patriarchal, as you know, this is a book for men. It's a target read. You can get through it, hopefully fair play in a day. But really deep down, I always say like, who is it serving? Who is this serving for me to think I'm a better multitasker for wiping asses and doing dishes? So that's guilt and shame, not serving women. And finally, three is my favorite thing in the world to do, which is literally burn it. And so that was something I did before the book tour where my husband who had held no cards went to holding every card before I left for five months. And I was feeling anxious about it. I took a piece of origami paper, you know, just like a piece of paper. I wrote guilt and shame on a Sharpie. I folded it into a square and I lit it on fire with a match. Oh, I love this. And I started talking to it. It was a really wonderful experiment because it's fun to talk to something burning. And as I spoke to it, I said, thank you, guilt and shame. You definitely got me out of my dysfunctional family environment. My brother's a drug addict and lives at home. I don't. Um, So there was some version of guilt and shame that got me out of that, but I don't actually need you anymore. So I'm going to let you go. And it's been hard for me to conjure it up. I will say. It's been very effective. And so I'm hoping when hopefully the supply chain is better, I'm thinking like, can I gift women like guilt and shame stage kits? You know, Um, where we can all just burn it. I love it. I mean, there is something, it seems like woo-woo, but if you really get into it, which I, and I think you love to do from the research aspect, like there's something to that that works. It's a ritual. It's a ritual and it's naming something. And to me, it's the naming, which I do a lot of rituals with my clients and families. It's the naming of something and action, like an actionable thing. Those things are hard to take back in a good way. So I would say those are my three steps to guilt and shame avoidance or to get it off of us, or at least minimizing it. Recognizing the half of population really doesn't live with it the same way that we do. Two, who does it serve? And three, burn it. I love it. So what do you call it? Raising the conscious, lifting your consciousness. Con- yes, we've done some consciousness raising with rule consciousness one Consciousness raising sure. with one and two. And then rule three, start where you are. If this is really about understanding yourself and your partner, right? Correct. This is supposed to be fun and funny um, to know what your personality profile is. It's supposed to be funny in terms of understanding your communications, And I think really the start where you are for me, Kristen, is at its core just about communication, which I think is really the practical steps of fair play begins the practical nature of the book. Mm -hmm. The first part has a little bit of female anger, as a lot of men say to me, but that the practical side is just something that they can listen to and believe in and play and really embrace. Men have been very good to the book, but really the idea is Understand that 50-50 is the wrong equation. Your fare is not going to look the same as my fare, but having the communication shift and not a start. So understanding that we are all communicating about domestic life. Too many women say to me, I don't communicate about domestic life. It's too triggering. That is just profoundly untrue. I had one In one way or another, you are, right. You are already communicating. One woman said that to me and she dumps wet clothes on her husband's pillow when he forgets to put them in the dryer. Okay, but she told me she doesn't communicate about domestic life. Another woman said she doesn't communicate. Oh, my son is like bursting in. Hold on. Let me go get him. Hold on. He's actually fair play for kids is pretty cool. So I'm going to bring him in. Hold on. 
Oh, good. That was actually the baby, surprisingly. Usually it's my older sons who come in. How old is the baby? Um, she's three. three. So she was just like sitting there like naked, like shining on the door. No, it was so cute. But again, no guilt and shame because I was like, no. I'll see you later. That's right. So, we, yes. we all need to watch what Eve just did. That's I am it. on a call. You are fine. You're fed. You're good. You'll live. You're good. You're good. You're with your brothers. Um, They love you. You're fine. But yeah, so I think, where were we? We were about, we were talking about something important. So communication. So let's, I want to do a little quiz. So tell me your partner's name because I saw him before and he was nice to help us. Trey. Okay. So this is more like to model for your listeners. I love it. Let's talk about the fundamentals of communication. Again, from a mediation perspective, I see a lot of amazing mental health professionals saying, start with I statements. I'm not sure what that means, Kristen. To me, that's like, I hate you. I want you to get the fuck away from me. So I statements don't really work for me. I want to talk really drill into what I mean by effective communication here. So number one to effective communication to start where you are is recognizing that we're already communicating. That when you say to me that you don't want to have a conversation with your partner, you are already communicating. Whether you're dumping your wet clothes on your partner's pillow, whether you're withholding sex, whether you're rolling your eyes, whether you're screaming. So I think it's important for us to recognize our communication vulnerability. So I list seven in fair play that come from working with families of all different shapes and sizes and with their top seven communication vulnerabilities I found working with very complex families. So I'd love for you to tell me what you think Trey would say about you. So not what you think about yourself, but what Trey would say about you. So I'm going to give you seven choices. Oh, shoot. Okay. One, long-winded. Wah, wah, wah. You're talking and no one's listening. Two, sharp command, sir. Your drill sergeant tone and delivery isn't popular with the troops. Three, bad timing. You drop your grievances and requests for help into the conversation at inopportune moments. Thanks for the flowers, honey, but you forgot dishwashing detergent. Four, toxic word choice. I wasn't going to say anything, but I really hate it when you dot, dot, dot. Five, all or nothing. You never replace the toilet paper roll. You always leave the seat up. Six, dredging up the past. This is just like the last time you forgot to dot, dot, dot. Seven, boiling over. I wasn't going to say anything. I avoided the conversation. I didn't say anything, but now I'm really pissed. So I'll give you the the seven again. One is long-winded. Two is tone and sharp commands. Three is bad timing. Four is toxic word choice. Five is all or nothing. Six is dredging up the past. Seven is boiling over. So if I had to ask Trey about maybe one of your last you know, arguments or something, what do you think he would say is your vulnerability? I have done all of those things in the last week. <laughs> Seriously. Being in quarantine. Okay, that's good. All together, yes. I have done every single one. of. I, the thing was to pick one, right? Pick one. Yeah, I've done every one. For your listeners. Uh, you're making me laugh. You know what? Love, but, uh, by the way, how vulnerable are you? Like that's so great for your listeners because if you're, we could just be vulnerable and understand our part. We are. Right. Um, we, we have agency in our own lives. Yes, there are bigger forces. Yes, there is societal policies that need to change. Right. But let's take agency in our own home, and that starts with understanding our communication vulnerability. Because if our partner cannot hear us. There's absolutely no way that you're going to rebalance a domestic workload in your home. It's just not going to happen. Taking ownership piece is huge and it takes a mental shift to do it, right? To be vulnerable, to let go of your ego. But once you do and you open up, big transformations can happen. I told you. So we got our cards here. My husband and I did this the other day and it's been a few days. We've probably bickered every day during quarantine and we have not. And it's over simple things like taking the trash out. Who's going to do it? We don't know who's going to do it. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at the bin. The recycling didn't come yet. There's shit on the ground. My do- It's his thing. So I don't have to think about it, right? It's not part of my That's mental right. load. And it just right. frees That's- up space for me to be happy. And when mommy's happy, honestly, everyone's happy. Correct. That's <laughs> all fair play is. That's all it is. Right. It's good self-help. It's just... A mindset shift. That's all. I mean, that's what personal growth books are supposed to do. They're supposed to help you with a mindset shift and understand yes. that. And also that we're not all in it alone, that there is, you know, there are these cultural expectations, but I think when you can start understanding that we all have a vulnerability, it is much easier to come to the table. Yes. I write to women. Yes. Of course, men can bring this up to women as well, but I like to say the solution 
is including men, right? It's not a lean in where it's all on us. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, yes, women can initiate these conversations because oftentimes we are the ones who are holding two thirds or more of the domestic workload. And so we need that change more than maybe our partner does. But the solution is both of you. And so I think that's the beauty is really all the fair play cards are is a mediation tool. It's like a cheaper therapist, right? It allows you to have a third party to say, well, I'm not telling you that we have to do garbage, but the cards are, right? So it allows it to be like a third party, a neutral third party that helps you figure out what's important in your life. But it starts with knowing your vulnerability. So my vulnerability is bad timing and tone and boiling over. So all those three things were the most popular in my surveys for women all over this country. Men were number seven, the avoidance to the boiling over. And so the beauty of those three is that they're all interrelated to the next step, which is that fair play is a practice. So I think if anybody out there feels like they're going to have one conversation over domestic life, it's probably going to go the same for your health as if you have one 30-minute exercise for the rest of your life. Oh, that's good. You may think that it's going to make you healthy, um, but I guarantee you working out for 30 minutes over a lifetime is not going to work. So fair play is a practice just like meditation, just like exercise. And that's what Seth and I, I see, that we do really well when we can communicate when emotion is low and cognition is high, because it avoids both of our vulnerabilities, which are the avoidance and boiling over for him and me, and in my bad timing. So now what happens is we know our vulnerabilities. We know they're related to talking to each other when emotion is high and cognition is low. So we hold our tongue and we walk away. Whoever gave the stupid advice to never go to bed angry is the worst advice I've ever heard in my life. Yes, I agree. I agree. Don't come back when your emotions are low and your cognition is high. Do not hash it out for 10 hours. Set right. a timer. So that's it. 10 minutes a night. I wake so up in the morning. I'm like, I don't even care anymore. I don't care. I have so many things where I've written it down because I know to wait for it now. And one time I had this thing in big caps I'd written down that said yellow rag. And I get to our nightly check-in because Seth and I, we do it every night now. Um, it used to be every week, Fair Play's a weekly check-in, but now we really need every night because we have three kids under um, the age of 11 who need to be homeschooled and it's, you know, it's the shit show. So every night we check in, but I had yellow rag. And so I just looked at it and I was like, I have no fucking idea what I wanted to talk to you about. It was something really important. I put it in all caps this but morning. That but that is such a good know. lesson, right? In the moment, it's like, it was the everything. biggest deal. Whatever it was, whatever. I really actually don't remember what it was. I wish I could even tell you. It probably had something to do with a yellow rag being stuck in the sink, getting wet. And it was supposed to be for drying things. I don't know. I don't know what yellow rag is till this day. I still don't know. Bite your but, tongue and look, check it avoided in. That, it avoided that fight. And so right. Seth can hear me so much better at night. I can hear him so much better at night. It avoids our tone. And so walk away. I'm going to give you counterintuitive advice to what you've heard your whole life about never going to bed angry. It's the opposite. Walk away from an unproductive conversation. But if you know you're coming back, problem with so many women and men who said they couldn't walk away was because they, A, they never communicated about domestic life. So when they're there, they say, well, if I don't say everything now, we're never going to talk about it again. This happens in the workplace too. There's a lot of scholarship around intentional communication in small bursts over and over again because managers get better feedback. So imagine you're a manager that doesn't check in with your employees. You're probably not going to hear about the rogue employee that's hurting, you know, or sexually harassing or God forbid something to somebody else if it's once a year and you're check-in. But if you're used to intentional communication with your manager, with your employees over time, those hard, difficult conversations get easier because, oh, I'm, I'm going to see my manager again today. We talk every day for 10 minutes or twice a week. So that's the same as the home. It's just a practice. Yes. And I think that's really what start where you are is. It's this idea of how do you communicate by knowing your vulnerabilities, by recognizing that when emotion is high, cognition is low, and there's really no one's going to hear anything then. And then finally, the last step, which is part of the last rule of fair play, a really important rule, is starting with your why. And everything you do, every communication step that I teach my clients is to start with your why. I'll give you an example of a woman who is a fair player. She reminds me of you. She's super intentional and lovely and uh, very vulnerable and willing to sort of talk about the practice of it. That that's not perfect, but that, you know, the practice has already been very helpful to her over time. So she says that 
Her husband holds the grocery card from start to finish. They talked about their minimum standard of care and their values for groceries, which is Ralph's and Trader Joe's because it meets their budgetary needs. He goes twice a week. He knows that, you know, texting her ever since Andrew Fair Play doesn't happen anymore because he surveys the family in advance for what they need. It's really amazing. So that's going really well. But she said that he goes to the store because that's already going well. She like forgot that's already good. Like it's already great. But he comes in and she uses her voice to say, wash your hands. Now I can't scream the way she told it to me. With a, I have a very deep voice, but her voice is very high. And so it was a piercing tone. She knows that's her vulnerability. Um, she couldn't stop herself in the moment, but her husband did drop the bag that had the eggs in it. And they're a family now of like banana bread bakers and like scrambled eggs. And her kids have like, oh, she said all of a sudden turned vegetarian and quarantine and like all they eat is eggs. So the dropping of the eggs was a big stressful incident that day. So she was like, I'm going to throw the eggs at him. I'm going to, you know, and so she says, wait for it. My emotion is super high. My cognition is low. She knew that. She holds on to it. They have a nightly check-in because fair play is a practice. They do it. And she's able to say to him, okay, fail today. Tone fail. Yes, I screamed at you. Yes, you're doing the grocery cart. Amazing. Yes, you're the one out there risking your life for us and the mask and the gloves. Thank you for that. But when you came in and didn't wash your hands and I thought I saw you taking out the pickle jar, starting to put things away, I felt like the last thing I could control in my life, which is washing our hands, was out of my control. And it felt like the whole world was crashing down on me. So when I see you in front of me washing your hands with a happy birthday song, what you're doing is you're spending less money than it would be on a therapist to invest in my mental health. And again, it was another thing that made me tear up because it was her why. She'd used the communication steps perfectly. Her husband was able to respond to her and say that he had Purell in his pocket. He carries a portable Purell around because... He knows that she's asking people to wash their hands all day long. And he said, I just wish you would have asked me if my hands were washed or trust me because I know this matters to you. And she said, okay. And that was it. And that they was moved it. On. Let's talk a little bit about unicorn space. Yeah. Because that yes. is one of my favorite parts of the book. What does that mean? Well, it's what you're doing right now. Yes, it um, is. No, it really is, right? I mean, you're t- like, what makes you uniquely you, right? I mean, you were in journalism. You were able to ask profound questions in a way that sort of made me cry that other podcasts haven't made me do. And then you share with your skills, the beauty with the world. Oh, shit, um, I'm going to cry now too. <laughs> yeah, but no, but it's true. I don't care whether it's paid. I don't care if this is your full-time job. If you're just doing this on the side, I don't give a shit about it, except for the fact that this is what... To me, as an outsider, it makes you uniquely you. We obviously just met through the book, but I feel like you're a spiritual friend even in one conversation. And that connection you have with people is something that I can mirror back in you. So every woman has this. And again, we lose it when we are told that all of our lives, our happiness is our milestones. I've been watching a lot of Disney lately, a lot of Disney Plus with my daughter. And Same. my older sons are the ones seeing this embedded yes. stuff about women being roles. My older son screamed and I thought he literally burned himself. It was an emergency. It was a, he said it was a fair play emergency because he was watching Cinderella with Anna, who's three. And the women and men are starting to sew Cinderella's dress, the men and women mice. And the women push the men away and say, leave the sewing to the women. So my son was internalizing it as those men can go use their time how they want to, but the actual sewing, those women have to be the ones who use their time to make Cinderella's dress. And Whoever marries your son is one lucky girl. He's amazing. He's the middle child I talk about a lot in Fair Play. He was the one who recognized, I don't know if any of you have seen Sing, but it was uh, another movie we've been watching in quarantine about yep. the animals and the talent competition. And I talk about this in the conclusion about the beauty of Ben being six at the time. Now he's eight, turning nine, uh, six at the time. And watching that movie and saying to me after listening over and over again to all these damn interviews that I'm doing on the car, on social media. Oh, yeah. And saying to me, 
oh, wow, Rosita, who was the pig who had 32 piglets and was a beautiful singer and then lost it and then goes back on stage and gives this kick-ass performance and her husband finally sees her again as a singer and not a toilet clogger person or a role. Ben said to me, you know, Rosita found her unicorn space. And that was a day that was super profound for me to understand that it was coupled with another thing a woman said to me in the quarantine, which is, you know what, I realized I was actually okay doing it all, but I'm not okay with my daughter and son watching me do it all. And That's so good. what does, I think, you know, That's ending good. here on this unicorn space and like, what, what makes you proud of yourself? What are your kids proud of you about? What do they know about you as a human? Because being vulnerable and sharing that with them, understanding that mommy is not available to get you when you're pounding on the door, you are safe, you've been fed, but um, I have other things to do. I care about the world. Those are actually really beneficial. Science shows that. And that's what unicorn space is. It's this idea that we are profoundly human. We're not a role. And when we have taught that our life is happily ever after, after you're 17, Ariel, the fucking mermaid, gets married at 17. And then she's gone. We never see her again. So that's it. Life disappears for us at 17. I don't like that narrative. Me neither. Um, fuck that narrative. Fuck that um, narrative. So, yeah, that's it. Unicorn space. What makes you you? How do you share with the world? Without domestic rebalance, it just felt like another shaming thing for me to do. Without, when the pen was stabbing me in that vagina, I said, I don't know what finding your passion and purpose means, but now I realize it's actually essential to set that boundary around yourself because the permission to be unavailable is everything. Yes. You can do it in a toxic way by having an affair. Uh, Some women told me that they're finding ex-boyfriends in quarantine on Facebook, or you can do it by your unicorn space. Oh shit. Yeah. So I'd say I'd rather do it through my unicorn space. Right. It saves my relationships. It strengthens my relationships, but it does make me unavailable. And I believe that does make me more attractive to my partner. It does. Uh, when I'm not always available. It does. And I have to say, I am so glad you forgot those blueberries because <laughs> you made this book that is a New York Times bestseller and it's changing lives. It really is. So will you tell everybody where they can find you? To learn yes, more. Yes. Uh, fairplaylife.com has lots of resources. And for people out there with kids, it's actually a really fun thing to do with your children. Because if you think the rainbow colored home schedule, you need that, burn the guilt and shame, you don't. The only thing successful kids need are how to complete tasks from start to finish. That's really what executive function is. So quiz your children. Go on fairplaylife.com and say, what does it mean to start to finish garbage? You'll see the full CPE on the website. You can click on it. So it's been a fun thing for me to introduce my kids to Fair Play again through all the cards and using that tool online to say, what does it actually mean to fully own a task from start to finish? And my kids are learning a lot from that. So fairplaylife.com has a lot of tools. And then of course, on Instagram, I answer DMs. And I love for people to reach out and I'll answer Eve Rodsky on Instagram. Thank you. 